Hi everyone, it's Tom here. I just wanted to say hi at the top of the show and in particular to say welcome to all the new listeners. We have had a huge number of new people discover the podcast in the last two weeks, probably because we've been featured on Apple Podcasts in the US and the UK. So a big welcome and we really hope you're enjoying the show and that you subscribe. Today's episode is about how the climate crisis is exacerbating the situation with refugees. It's a tough subject, but certainly not without reasons for optimism. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism, a new podcast about solving the climate crisis and remaking the world. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we look at how climate change is accelerating the refugee crisis and ask what solutions exist that can help us overcome this acute but long-term challenge. Christiana and I then travel to Detroit, where we talk to David Miliband, CEO of the International Rescue Committee, former Foreign Secretary of the UK, and author of the book Rescue, Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time. Thanks for being here. Well, I actually wanted to start by sharing with you a story that I discovered as I was researching this, because I think what's interesting is as you delve into this incredibly complex global topic that we'll only be able to sort of scratch the surface of today, there are all these sort of stories of human endeavour and human brightness where people have stepped up to meet this. And one that really struck me was from this Italian town of Sutera. So some years ago, about four or five years ago, uh, the mayor of Sutera was approached by an international organisation to find out if they had any space in the graveyard. 400 migrants had drowned off the coast. And they didn't. It was an ageing population that had been filled for many years. But the mayor said, well, if we can't help the dead, perhaps we can do something for the living. And he started to look at whether it was possible to rehouse some of the migrants that had successfully made the journey in properties that were disused in the town. Now, the interesting thing about it was this was a sort of, you know, classic sort of European town. There wasn't many jobs. Um, The younger population had moved away and it was actually um, struggling economically. When the refugees moved in, it began to return closer to the population that it had been 20, 30 years before. There was rural businesses were reopened. There was a sense of local entrepreneurship. The school avoided collapse. And actually, life started coming back to this place. And the thing that really struck me was then, three years later, the mayor of Sutera asked how it went. And he said, we have been dealing with integration for 2,000 years. And for that time, Sutera has been salvation for many foreigners. Well, guess what? Today, the salvation of Sutera is the refugees. So... At a time when it feel, there's so much in the media about walls being built, fear of the other being precipitated. What this shows to me, I think, is um, it kind of counters what Pope Francis called the globalization of indifference in response to the refugee crisis. And I think it shows something that I feel to be true, which is people do care, but they struggle to know what to do. So I, I love your, um, your story, um of this Italian town because, you know, David Miliband, he, I think, really hit it on the on the nail when he said, the biggest obstacle in the refugee crisis is not the scale of the problem, but the paralyzing fear that we cannot make a dent. Mm. And so I think, can we spend just a few minutes first on the scale of the problem? Mm. And then can we move to 
where are the possibilities to make a dent? Because I think although forced migration and climate change are related and climate change will definitely magnify it, I think they are very, very different problems and can be approached from different direction. But let's go to the let's go to the scale. So do we have our numbers correct that there is about 68 or going maybe on 69 million forced migrants in the world? Mm. Two-thirds of them are still inside their own countries. They have migrated from home to some other area because of many reasons that we will discuss. One-third of them have actually forcibly migrated outside of their borders. Scaringly, half of them are children. Wow. One whole half of forced migrants are children. And just to get, you know, the scale right, there is a person being displaced somewhere in the world every second. Just, you know, just so that we know how deep this crisis is. Now, the other thing that we learn is that most of these forced migrants are living in cities. They're not in refugee camps. Refugee camps get a lot of media attention, but most people have actually migrated to cities. Uh, they're mo- mostly displaced, not for a week or two weeks or a month, but rather for e- years, the average being 17 years. So, you know, when when you have that length of a displacement, there is definitely a systemic solution that needs to be found for people who are in a different place than where they were born for um, for 17 years or or thereabouts. So um, so that's the scale, right? Mm. I mean, it really is very daunting. Um, and of course, most of them come from developing countries that are under incredible stress, whether it is war um, that is stressing, whether it is hunger, whether it is climate change that affects hunger, um, whether it is maybe the fact that they just can't make a living, so socioeconomic um, pressure. But these are definitely people who are leaving against their will, and I think that's the important thing to remember. It's not that they want to leave home. These are forced to leave because of the circumstances that they're trying to survive. Mm. There was that wonderful quote uh, that came from the British author, uh, Wilson Shire, who said, no one puts their child in a boat unless mm-hmm. the water is safer than safer. the land. Exactly. And just one more comment on scale. I mean, those those are the numbers I, I saw as well. And the other thing, of course, is as we look at, climate change tends to be referred to as a multiplier in the world of immigration and forced migration, um, because it doesn't necessarily directly lead, although it can do, to people needing to leave their homes, but it can multiply threats in all sorts of ways around around conflict, around war, around water, and all sorts of other things. But the assessments of the numbers of additional refugees that will be created by the climate crisis, of course, vary depending on how it pans out and how we how we do on emissions mitigation or don't do or don't do. But the 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 number is around 200 million by 2050. So we're now at let's call it 70 million. So it could be a three times. By 2050, and I've seen that number vary from 25 million in the best case scenario to over a billion in the hardest case scenario. And so in response to that, many people, nationalist politicians will say, uh, these people are economic migrants, they're trying to improve their conditions, which actually you agree is true. Um, You say they're forced, which 
is also uh, perhaps true, but it's it's a fact that they're trying to improve economic conditions. And, you know, we have uh, systems for protecting the weak and the vulnerable within our borders of our, of our super rich nation states, mm. and we don't project that care beyond. Yet 3.9 billion internet users can see the absolutely phenomenal wealth we've got. So, you know, if you were them, you would want to travel either because uh, persecution, conflict, or climate change, water, food stress drives you, or because basic conditions in, you know, the rich countries are so significantly better than they are in some of the poorer ones, uh, so to say, if you want to, you know, use that that simplistic right. narrative. So how do, you know, what's the plan for changing domestic populations to recognise, you know, that, and the only solution, surely, to the refugee crisis is, is bigger hearts? I, so I, I, th- I think you're right. I think that the... Um the participation in this and the, 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 the human emotional response that it brings out has to become more tangible for people to actually soften some of that fear of somebody else coming and taking something that's mine mm. that seems to periodically grab what's going on. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you saw this kind of emergence of this sort of global attempt to deal with this via the UN Compact on Migration, Mm, right? So that was very interesting, negotiated over a long period of time, led to clashes and arrests in Brussels at the end of last year, agreed to by 193 countries, the US the only exception, but only formally adopted by 164. But what's interesting is the agreement leaves national sovereignty fully intact, the objectives are better data, to minimize the factors compelling people to leave, to provide pro- migrants with proof of identity, reduce vulnerabilities and combat smuggling, all good stuff, right? But there's this kind of fear of it that seems to be grasping people that is leading to a mood in which it's very difficult politically to do this. I mean, it, it, it does just, it, the, the road we took on climate change towards the Paris Agreement is not completely dissimilar, right, from the negative pessimism of this is impossible, it's too large, we couldn't do it, to a point of collective agreement of meeting the challenge in the moment. We kind of need to go through that sort of process with this as well, would you agree? Right, just before Christiana comes in, that you know, like Paris, yeah. um, the UK minister said that the compact does protect every state's right to determine its own immigration policies, including such areas as asylum, border controls and illegal migrants. Mm. So there is that flexibility like Paris. Yeah, I mean, I I must admit that um, maybe because I I obviously have not spent any reasonable amount of time on this subject, certainly much less than on climate. Um, And I just feel like anything here is walking on very thin ice because this is just incredibly traumatic to all of these people. Um, and immediately traumatic to them. And I think by the time we are looking already at how do we integrate them or how do we sell, we're already jumping over where this whole thing starts. This whole thing starts with the very personal, very deeply human trauma, personal trauma that all of these people suffer and experience by the time they decide that they have to leave. They're already traumatized, right? And then they decide that they have to leave. Uh, And so that forced departure is already traumatic to them. 
let alone everything that happens to them, particularly to women, en route from mm. where they leave to en route to where they're going to go and what happens to many of them when they arrive at where they want to go, right? And we tend to forget that whole piece because as recipient countries, right, in Europe, let's say, or in uh, other countries that are recipient countries, we look at it from the recipient side. We say, okay, well, how are we, are we going to accept these people? How are we going to integrate them economically, socially? How are we going to sell this to our, if you were a politician, mm -hmm. how do we sell it to our constituents? Uh, how do we put forward all of the benefits of receiving people from other countries. But we tend to forget that there's a whole traumatic part to that of the forced departure and the forced march, if you will, through those, um, through those migration routes. And that these, it's not that we are receiving people who voluntarily say, Paul, to your, to your first point, uh, well, I don't feel happy here where I am, therefore voluntarily I'm going to move somewhere else. No, this is a very different situation. Mm. This is people who have absolutely no other possibility to survive and, in fact, no guarantee of surviving even if they leave. Mm. So it's a much more traumatic and painful reality. Uh, no, I, I, I agree with that, and I think that has to be acknowledged throughout the entire process. But at the end of the day if we're going to try and address it in the way that you're talking about. Number one is, it's a bad situation now, but if we don't get on top of mitigation, it's going to get even worse, right? So mm -hmm. the, the urgency of that is only underscored by what we're discussing here. And in fact, it needs to be everybody's priority when they wake up in the morning to not let this get any worse. As we go down that road, however, the next piece is around resilience financing and enabling those countries to actually build the infrastructure systems, the agriculture systems at home, at home that allow so that people them, can stay home. Exactly. I mean, there will be places that become uninhabitable, islands and coastal areas, but there will be a range of other places that will exist in a new scenario, but that can be made better with proper planning, with proper Correct. financing and proper support. I, I think, um, I'm, I don't know if you came across this example of Kiribati and some of the other South, South Pacific islands and what they're facing. I mean, Kiribati is very interesting. They're 100,000 population. The vast majority of them now face flooding in their homes on a daily basis. And by 2050, the islands are most likely to have completely disappeared. So the state has purchased 6,000 acres of land in Fiji to try to accommodate them, and Tuvalu is now looking at doing the same thing. So it raises a whole host of very challenging sort of legal questions, international relation questions as to is that, does that state still exist under that scenario? Interestingly, New Zealand, which is right on the doorstep of many of these countries, has become the only country in the world um, to recognize the impact of climate change as a grounds for asylum and they plan to now create a special visa for these islanders so that they can relocate there. I mean, there's something in there that feels like what is going to be, over time, the beginning of an international response. Would you agree? I think while your opening story, Tom, is very moving and very important, what it denotes is that there is a need for there to be a bottom-up approach to this, yeah. which has a lot to do with understanding who we are as human beings and what is our humanity all about. That's a bottom-up. But now, 
we also understand that there, in addition to that, there has to be a top-down response as well. Mm. It's not, it cannot be, you know, to, to Miliband's question about are we paralyzed, so paralyzed by fear that we can't make a dent? Well, we have to, um, and it has to be both. It has to be both a bottom-up of truly looking at ourselves to the bottom of ourselves to use bottom in two different in two different senses um, who we are at heart and who we are at spirit so that we can understand that we are all sharing this planet um, and we can welcome our brothers and sisters in that open spirit and at the same time we need those uh top-down approaches such as uh, New Zealand and uh, and Fiji to really be able to welcome people who don't have any other option. But it's it's a combination of the two, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and also they're interconnected, of course, because if you have the bottom-up, it makes the top-down much easier and possible. More possible. Hi, it's Tom here again. So... We recorded that piece a couple of weeks ago and Christiana and I then travelled to Detroit with Leaders Quest for a three-day event that Christiana was leading together with Tom Friedman and David Miliband. We spent the time there meeting leaders in the remarkable regeneration of that community that is going on as the city works to rebuild itself after having gone from being the richest city in the world to bankruptcy within 100 years. Just prior to this interview, David and I had spent the afternoon boarding up disused homes in northern Detroit and learning about how they are trying to focus on a different type of growth that values human beings and brings them into the future of the city. So David is currently the CEO of the International Rescue Committee. IRC is a global humanitarian aid, relief and development NGO organisation founded in 1933 by Albert Einstein the IRC provides emergency aid and long-term assistance to refugees and those displaced by war, persecution or natural disaster. David's also had a long career in politics as an MP in the UK and in the cabinet in various positions and is still lamented by many in these complex and challenging political times that we are enduring as the UK as the best prime minister we never had. Here's the conversation. So, David, thank you very much for taking some time out to share your wisdom and experience. Um, and, you know, it strikes us that you are probably the one and only person in the world. Would you like, to hear, the, would you no. like to hear the end of that sentence? No. <laughs> <laughs> the one and only person in the world who has uh, a very high profile and a very deep experience with both climate change and refugees. And so we kind of suspect that you have a unique perspective on certainly on the nexus between these two. What would that unique perspective be? Well, I don't uh, want to claim unique uh, perspective because people on the sharp end, first of all, have a much deeper engagement than I do. The, the farmers that we're helping in the Sahel uh, the people who were driven off the land in northwestern Syria and ended up in Daraa. I mean, they, they've got a really extraordinary perspective on being displaced and on the resource crunch. Um, I guess my perspective, though, for this conversation uh, has a couple of elements. Both of them are very acute 
in their effects, but long-term in their nature. I don't think the refugee crisis is short-term. I think it's long-term. It reflects deep trends. Both of them are invisible to significant sections of humanity and so are susceptible to the not-our-problem syndrome, which I think is dangerous. And uh, both of them involve issues of justice, which inevitably bring policy questions into the heart of the political process. And I think that one of my reflections about the refugee crisis, and it's not often made, but it applies also to the climate crisis, is that if it was just a policy problem, we would know how to solve it. We know how to decarbonize and we know how to integrate refugees. Um, we're not so good at peacemaking, but that's a, you know, to go upstream. But there are policy answers to at least the symptoms of the refugee crisis and the symptoms of the climate crisis. The politics make both very, very difficult. And I guess that's one of the things that we're trying to work on. And when they're compounded, it makes the political issue even more acute. That's interesting. And the compound is complicated, though. People often say to me, you must be living with a lot of climate refugees. And I always pause on that. I'm, I, I don't want to sign up too easily for that for a couple of reasons. One, the refugee, the definition of a refugee is someone who can't safely return home. Mm -hmm. And while um, Tom rightly reminded me about Kiribati and uh, the danger of mm. islands being lost, the vast majority of people whose lives are affected by climate change um, can stay within their own home country. For the if, time being. For the, yeah, for the time being. I'm, I'm just explaining. I, I'm yeah, not, yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to say it's wrong. Just, just yeah, yeah. for a bit of texture, there are climate displaced. In other words, they're internally displaced. Internally. The Syrians moved within Syria. The Bangladeshis in the main move within uh, Bangladesh. Um, so in the Sahel, there's a bit more movement across borders, but most of the cross-border movement is to do with conflict, not directly War. to do mm -hmm. with climate. Now, that yields a second point, which is important, which is obviously resource stress is one of the drivers of conflict. So the indirect effects mm -hmm. of climate on displacement mm -hmm. are, if anything, currently more important, at least mm. when it comes to cross-border movements, i.e. refugee movements, because remember, mm -hmm. a refugee is someone who is driven from their home by conflict or persecution or disaster, and who crosses a border. Mm -hmm. Conflict or persecution, actually, not disaster. And uh, I think that the indirect effects are something that are often neglected in the debate about the refugee crisis. The direct effects, of course, are coming. And that's obviously a, a medium-term danger. So, so do you think, are we missing some language then? Because what you're describing is that there are individuals who are forced from their homes as a result either directly of extreme weather events or indirectly as a result of conflict that's precipitated by resource scarcity, but maybe they don't cross a border. But, you know, people probably inexpertly talk a lot about climate refugees. There, there, maybe there's a term or something that we're missing in there. Yes, but as always, language reflects when there's difficulties over language, it reflects difficulties over reality. Right. And so people like me would say, beware opening up the 1951 Refugee Convention because getting 193 countries today to agree that anyone who is rendered <laughs> stateless... We know exactly yeah, what right. you're talking so about. So now, if you'd like... A, we feel the once, same way about right. the <laughs> Once you've sorted out the climate, you can come and right. sort out <laughs> the, uh, the, the refugee question. So, without opening sorry. either convention. So, it, there are so, so right. I think the language... We have to choose our language carefully. Yes. But I think that I wouldn't myself 
argue that today is the time or now is the time or even in the foreseeable future is the time to open up the Refugee Convention. I think that the challenge is to defend the principle that those who are forced from their homes and across borders by conflict or persecution deserve international support. Mm. Because the danger is that, that, or the reality is, they're not getting it in a lot of places. Mm. And there isn't a fair distribution of the burdens, uh, reminiscent of the climate crisis, and uh, there isn't a um, an appropriate set of norms that are being defended by those with the greatest ability to do so. And so I think that we're in a situation where we have to um, engage the climate question as a driver of the flow of mm -hmm. people, uh, but also recognize that the fundamental issue is what we do about it, not what we call it. Right. So as a driver, we're hugely concerned because if we have 68 million displaced people, I think two-thirds within their boundaries and one-third internationally, is that more or exactly, less correct? Yeah. That's good. Um, how, how much would you be concerned about climate being a real multiplier of that over the next 20 to 30 years? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I always say that there are four big drivers of the current displacement crisis. You can read about it in my book. I've learned in America that one shouldn't be shy about advertising one's wares. <laughs> rescue, yeah. rescue, yes, rescue, published by rescue refugees and the political crisis of our time. Available from all good internet uh, sites, beginning with the word A, um, and uh, published by Simon, and local independent bookshops. Simon and local independent bookshops. Uh, Simon and Schuster stroke TED books. I, I, look, there are four big drivers, I think, of the of the current displacement crisis. One is weak and fragile states that don't have the political systems that credibly and legitimately share political power. South Sudan, Syria, uh, good examples. Uh, secondly, a weak and divided international political system that is losing the habit of peacemaking and is in danger of losing the habit of peacekeeping as well. Uh, thirdly, ructions within significant parts of the Islamic world we are. Uh, I run the International Rescue Committee. It was an agency founded by Albert Einstein in the 1930s to rescue Jews from Europe as a secular agency. Uh, today, 40, 45% of our work, uh, and we helped 27 million people last year, is in Muslim-majority countries. So there's something going on in significant parts of the uh, Islamic world, Afghanistan, Syria, to do with differences over religion, differences over governance, differences over engagement with the, out, with the, with the wider world. Uh, some of the humanitarian crises that we deal with, for example, Yemen, bring different parts of the Islamic world into direct conflict with each other. Mm. So that's part of the story here. There's a roiling. And then the fourth element is, I always say, uh, resource stress. Mm -hmm. Those four drivers are not short-term. And that's why I say that the refugee and displacement crisis is a trend and not a blip. And that's a circular way of saying that your 20 to 30 year time frame is one that enjoins us to think systematically and seriously about rising numbers of people displaced right. uh, against their will or uh, against their preference rather than uh, this being overcome quickly. And yet we can't wait the 20 to 30 years, right? We have to actually uh, engage with a greater sense of urgency. And you've also said, David, that um, the refugee crisis is a test of our character. Um, so tell us what part of that character are you already seeing coming 
and emerging as part of the solution? And what part of that character are you still having to push, engage, invite, because it's just not there yet? Well, let me answer this in a way that perhaps you're not expecting by taking you Please. to northern Uganda. Because when you say our character, there's an implication that the our... I hope it's the human character. Well, there you go. So in, the in, human character. So I went to northern Uganda at the height of the flight of South Sudan's one and a half million people into northern Uganda. I met the deputy head of the local council up there whose home is, um, if you like, at the eye of the hurricane. And I said to him, look, you've had these one and a half million people coming through your area. Why do you let them in? A question that occurred to me. I actually said to him, have you, heard of, have you thought of building a wall? And uh, he... You didn't really say he, that, did he, yeah, I did, actually. And he said he knew what I was saying. And he laughed. And he said, look, these are our brothers and sisters. And he said, don't misunderstand me. I'm not just making a generalized call for empathy, which he was. He, but he is saying... Sometimes these literally are our brothers and sisters because we fled at the height of our troubles in the 70s and 80s and we know that they're our brothers and sisters in a soulful way as well mm, as in a absolutely. sometimes mm. in a literal uh, way. And I think that the greatest value we have to reassert in the face of dehumanization of refugees, dehumanization of them as terrorists by certain political leaders, um, we have to rehumanize the refugee crisis by saying these are engineers, these are accountants, these are farmers, these are mm. housewives, these are people who, just like you and me, uh, they're NGO leaders who are being persecuted in some cases. Mm. And I think it's really important that we draw on that side of our character in a hard-headed way. This isn't just a, a big-hearted argument. One of my uh, challenges or one of my... Um, aims as an NGO leader is to say we've got to be big-hearted, but, but it's right to be hard-headed about issues of value for money, impact, um, and really engaging with the challenges that exist in the places where we work. Because just to give you an example, the mortality rate outside the Dadaab refugee camp in eastern Kenya, which is one of the largest refugee camps in the world, is lower. The mortality age is lower than inside the camp. So in many places, the life expectancy of the host population is below that of the refugee population. So we, when I say we've got to be hard-headed, we've got to say, if we're going to call for a right to work for refugees, we've got to think, well, hang on, what are the rights to work of the host population? Yeah, why, why would that be? That's to do well, with it's the just a very poor, ever, right. very poor area. And, right. you know, my point is that being hard-headed means going below the rhetoric hmm. and really thinking in practical, hard ways about how do we have maximum impact? And just to take the example further, one way the humanitarian sector has to change, we, we, our history is producing, giving people tents and food. Actually, it's better to give them cash, yes, which I they then, which they then spend in local shops. And then the local shopkeepers have got a reason to think, well, hang on, maybe it's not all bad that these people come here. We can, hmm. we, we can find a way to grow our resource, our resource pie together. So I think that's important. But we have to draw on the deepest parts of the human character, the, the capacity for empathy, but do so in a way that recognizes that people have challenges of their own and calling on people to empathize with others who are in trouble is much more likely to succeed if you, if you empathize with people about their own troubles. Right. I mean, it's just following on from that question about um, a test of our character, um, I think it's really interesting that you phrase it in that way. And I think 
one thing that's happening at the moment. It's becoming more and more evident that you know climate change is caused by a subset of the human population, those of us in the West, in the wealthy countries that have emitted more historically than others. And so as a result of that, not only is there a calling to kind of meet this character test from an empathetic perspective to understand what's happening, but there's also a kind of historical responsibility for it. So what does that do to that test of character? When I say our character, I mean, yeah. I say in my book, um, rescue isn't just about the rescue of quote-unquote them, it's also about the rescue of us. And the rescue I'm talking about are the norms and sometimes laws, uh, but essential values that weren't inherent or aren't inherent in Western character, but they came to the fore after the bitter lessons of the first half of the 20th century. And it was the Western world that led in the development of universal values. It didn't invent universal values of rights and empathy, but it institutionalized them in international conventions and mm. in international law. And you know from the politics that exists in the US, in significant parts of Europe, including in the UK, there's a challenge to those norms as being somehow grandiose or ill-judged. And my point is that they represent the best of, quote-unquote, our character mm. and need, to, need habilitation and rehabilitation and defense. And so I think that... It is about responsibility. It is about recognizing that those who have the greatest have the greatest responsibility. Uh, but it's also about recognizing the reality. At the moment, the greatest responsibility for the refugee crisis is not being borne by rich countries. It's being borne by poor countries. Right. 86% of the world's refugees are in poor and lower middle income countries, not in rich countries. So this is about not fulfilling an unfair share of the burden, but actually a minimum level. Hmm of the quote-unquote burden. Well, and I think the opportunity here is to see that that moral imperative, let's just call it the moral imperative, is actually not at odds with the economic opportunity, right? And today I heard the fantastic sentence that I have never heard, we just don't have enough refugees. Now, that really turns the conversation around. When you come to the conclusion we don't have enough refugees mm. because we have more jobs, more tasks that need to be done than can be fulfilled, and we would benefit from these people actually coming and contributing to our economy, now you have, in addition to the moral imperative, now you have actually the recognition that there is huge positive contribution. Well, I don't know if... Am I allowed to argue with you in this? Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want yeah. to seem like a uh, pedantic and difficult person, uh, or a pedantic contrarian, God forbid. Um, but uh, let me try and say a couple of things about that, that argument and why I don't make it. The uh, argument of economic opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Now, the, uh, first of all, I say there's no doubt about it. If you look at the facts... Refugees bring more to communities than they cost. The American government commissioned a study that showed that refugees are net contributors to the American tax base, not mm. net uh, burden. However, I don't make the economic argument for refugees because I don't want to live in a world where if you're fleeing from persecution or war, whether or not you're allowed into another country depends on your economic value. Mm. And I try to make the case that even if these people who are fleeing from conflict and persecution were an economic drain, then we, they would still. St we would still want to treat them as people who need our shelter 
our, need our refuge. Remember, there's that beautiful point that Elie Wiesel, before he died, made to me. He said, look, sometimes the word refugee is not popular, but if you take off the E, refuge, <laughs> that's popular. Right. It's a great point. But yes. what I say to people is, look, the case for providing refuge, hopefully temporary refu refuge, mm. if peace comes to a country that's been at, at war, but if not, then long-term refuge is different from the economic and social case for having an immigration policy that encourages people to come to your country. So my basic point is, if you've got a skills problem, then have a proper have an immigration policy that can help hmm. address it. Now, I don't want to lose the economic argument. I don't want to be put in a position of saying, oh, so you're saying that these people are a burden. They're not. The evidence is, and it, you know, we're, we're meeting in Detroit. Detroit has historically had a declining population, and some cities that have had declining populations have been particularly open to refugees. I'm thinking about Baltimore, where IRC has a, is part of the coalition for building a bigger Baltimore, and we do it by bringing in refugees. So refugees are net contributors, but this is my, I don't want to be a pedantic contrarian. Beware the, beware the argument that says we should do it because they're an economic benefit. Yes, make the argument, these people are economic contributors, think of them as productive assets, but just know that there are, you've got to be careful with that argument. Can we step back a little bit because before they could become productive assets? Um, well, remember, half of all refugees are kids as well. Um, so. That's my point. Yeah. Half of them are kids and many of them are not getting a decent education. What What... What are best practices that you practices that you've seen that actually provide children for what is absolutely a human right, but also prepares them for a better life? Well, the best practice, in a way, is bleedingly obvious. I mean, what did Richard Titmus, the great British sociologist, say? He said, "You know, you'd want for all the nation's uh, children to have what you want for your children," and it, it's the same applies to refugees. What do you want? One, you want their social and emotional needs to be addressed because you know that unless social and uh, trauma and emotional trauma is not addressed, no kid can access education, and that's particularly true for a refugee kid, but it applies to any of our kids as well. Secondly, you want them to get a good grounding in the basics. Third, you want their education to expand their horizons. Fourth, you want to give them a chance to make their own living and follow their own passion. And so the recipe is surprisingly simple to say, but it is unbelievably badly met in practice. 2% of the global humanitarian budget goes on education. 2%, given that 50% of the... Now, to be fair, the European Union have said that 10% of their humanitarian aid is going to go on education. That's a bit more like it. Mm. But it, overall, it's uh, 2%. And we've got, at the International Rescue Committee, particular expertise in, de in what we call our healing classrooms, addressing the social and emotional trauma of kids who've seen unspeakable tragedy and crimes in their own lives. Now, we, were, more about we were in Detroit today and we heard about young children of eight or ten who are seeing yeah. shootings going on in their own schools or their own communities. We know from our work around the world uh, that children of a very young age can see bombings that kill their relatives or even their parents. They can see slaughter, South Sudan being a good example, that includes their own closest relatives. You never forget that as a child, but we do know how you can help Mm -hmm. therapeutically, children come to terms with it. And it means giving them adult associations they can trust. It means helping them come to terms with their own feelings and, and their own trauma. And we do that 
in a very supple and engaged way, which isn't by building high-tech classrooms, it's by giving human contact that is trustworthy. And we do that in the Bekar Valley, we do that across Pakistan, we do that in some of the, in the state system in Pakistan, in the non-state system in uh, Lebanon, but we're doing it in increasing numbers of countries around the world. And then you can build, once you give, you open the door to learning, and open the door to adult engagement, then sky's the limit, really. And, and once you have addressed trauma, because otherwise that unaddressed trauma is basically a closed door for anything else that could come after that. Yeah, and then you have to build, you know, 50% of primary school age refugee kids get no education, three quarters of secondary school age kids get no education. And then, you know, almost most tragic of all, kids who spent 10, 11 years in education suddenly find that when they're driven out of their country, their studies from one country are not recognized not in another know, country and they right. can't get onto university or mm -hmm. they can't go on and make something of themselves. So education is a massive lacuna. And our argument, perhaps the pivotal point we're making at the IRC, the International Rescue Committee these days, is we've got to think of the humanitarian enterprise as being about how do you help people thrive, not just how do you help people survive. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the reason is simple. Humanitarian crisis is not short term. The average, the figures are disputed and actually the figures are vague rather than disputed. 17 years is thought to be the average mm -hmm. length of displacement for any person from, uh, as a refugee. Correct. And so you can't think of that as a short, that's an intergenerational mm. uh, struggle. And so I think it's really important to think about helping people thrive, meaning education for kids and employment for adults. One of the things happening in climate change at the moment is there is this kind of moment of realization of the seriousness of the impacts. So, you know, there was the 1.5 report last year. Now that's given birth to these student strike movements, to the Sunrise Movement. And there's women saying they're not going to give birth to children because of what kind of world are they going to live, live in. And I think the area that people feel most panic about is the idea of large numbers of climate refugees. And you can see people who are concerned about climate change can really get quite worked up about that as a potential dark scenario in the future. What, what do you say to people? Because I know one of your big messages has been that this is challenging, but it's resolvable as well. Do you think that those fears can be met? Look, the world's resources for meeting difficult challenges have never been greater. So the, there, are no, there are fewer excuses than there've been before, uh, but the world's ability to screw it up is magnified by the interconnectedness of the global economy. Look, we know that people, I, I, we, 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 I said earlier that the Ugandans are not building a wall, but there are plenty of people running for office who around the world who can some see in office. some in office who can yeah. see the political attraction of doing that including in Europe and so I, I don't want to say I'm an optimist I'm a pessimist I'm I'm committed I'm committed to trying to do something about it and so if you're an activist you've got to believe that uh, you've got to spend your time making a difference not discussing whether or not you're you going to make enough of a difference okay and where where would you on I hate to put you on a one to 10 rating, but um, if I were to press you into that, one to 10 being one, we're not making any headway, 10, actually, we're learning so much that we can make a real difference over the next five to 10 on years. On what? On how to deal productively and humanely with the refugee well, crisis. Well, look, you, you asked for two scales. You said, one, how much headway are we making? And two, how much are we learning? And those are totally different things. So learning, we're in the sevens and eights. We're learning about welfare to work for refugees, we're learning about microfinance for refugees, we're learning about successful integration for refugees. In Germany, we're now working and learning some very good lessons there. In terms of headway, 
I would be on a much lower end of the scale. I mean, we're, we're at the twos and threes, not at the nines and tens or mm. even sevens and eights when it comes to addressing the, consequ- the, the causes of the refugee crisis were at one. Uh, and when it comes to, because there's a crisis of peacemaking around the world, just look at Yemen. And we are, um, although actually now you'd give the Yemen a two or a three because Martin Griffiths, the UN envoy, has got a partial ceasefire in part of the country. Um, and then you, you, when, it deals, when it comes to dealing with the symptoms, we know that some very poor countries are bearing a disproportionate share of the burden. Mm. I don't want to say alone, but almost alone. Bangladesh, 700,000 refugees, not much help being offered to them. And so I think we've got some some hard work, some hard yards to win. Very good. What gives you most inspiration? Where do you draw most inspiration, most hope, most optimism, most, you Well, I've know, got a really where, where simple answer. I've got a you? simple answer for you, which um, what I do is I quote uh, a film crew that went to DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, and they said, if you look at the statistics, you get depressed. If you look at the people, you have hope. Mm. You and go. that is the lesson of life because we're meeting in Detroit. We've been meeting some people who are trying to battle the stagnation stroke decline of the city. If you look at the statistics and you hear, we heard last night, 50% of adults in Detroit are functionally illiterate. I've no idea. Uh, we were told that by a city leader. Yeah. Even if it's only half true, even if it's only 25%, you Still want to bury your head in your hands. But then you meet people today, some of whom may have been illiterate, who are remarkable leaders mm. of change in their own lives, revolutionaries in leaders of change in their own lives, uh, but could also inspire a whole generation to do things differently. Mm. So don't look at the statistics if you want to be hopeful. Look at the people. Communicate with the people directly. Thank you, David. Thank you very, well, very much. Well, listen to the people. I listen think. to listen. the people. Even better. Even better. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I don't think there's a huge amount to say after that extremely insightful assessment from David as to the causes of and ways through the refugee crisis. To me, it's clear from listening to that that solutions do exist and we are learning enough to really understand how to integrate refugees, but also how to help build systems at home that increase the resilience of those countries. But it's also clear that the politics are just getting harder and harder. We are going to need effective top-down solutions to be sure, but that is only going to be made possible if the bottom-up part of this, the grassroots, the NGOs and the individuals, continue to build this momentum in such a way that it creates political space. It's all too easy to see how this could get worse in the coming decades. It's up to all of us to ensure that it doesn't. So thanks for joining this episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'd like to say a big thanks to our friends and partners at Leaders Quest for their support on this episode. And also, of course, a big thanks to David Miliband for coming on. We are delighted that so many of you are listening to the podcast and seem to be enjoying it. But please do remember to leave us a rating. It makes a huge difference. Just go to Apple Podcasts and rate us using the starred system takes one second and makes a huge amount of difference as we try to keep building the momentum with this new thing. Just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism. The co-hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson and me, Tom Rivikana. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Pete Clutton-Brock, 
Clay Carnell, Chloe Ravel, Natasha Rivet Karnak, Alexandra Vargas Morera, Sarah Thomas, Marina Mancilla, Callum Grieve, and Zoe Cholakantich. I'd also like to thank Michael Northrup from Rockefeller Brothers Fund and Nigel Topping from We Mean Business. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and please do subscribe and leave us a rating. Next week, Gina McCarthy will be here. Former administrator of the EPA under President Obama, Gina has been a leader on climate and clean air for decades. Don't miss that conversation. We'll see you then.